Well, we're going to be diving in to our first podcast on mental health. Oh, and I do want to give a little bit of a warning to listeners tonight. Um, If you are currently having struggles with your own mental health, um, if you have a history of trauma, um, then I would advise you to make sure that you're in a good place to listen to this tonight because we are going to be getting into some hard topics. We'll be talking about traumatic pasts, their effect on us, things that might trigger people, which is just a fancy way of saying when you hear it, it causes a pretty strong reaction in your mind. Um, We're going to be talking about suicide a little bit and the way that those things affect communities and community mental health. So if that's you, I invite you before you listen to this episode to get yourself into a mental place to listen to it, or if you're just not there right now, maybe take a back seat for this episode. Yep. So we're going to be starting off with a story from this summer. We like to start off all of our podcasts, hopefully with a story from the Wilmore area. If you will. Yes, a vignette. So... Lead us away. So this story uh, took place just outside of Wilmore, um, in the communities in between Lexington and our fair city. And it was during my time at my practicum. Now you got to hear a little bit about my practicum in the teaser episode that we recorded a little while back. And I was working with severe mentally ill um, patients and clients through the um, Bluegrass and New Vista Community Counseling Center. Now, of course, I'm not going to give away any identifying information, but one of the clients that I was working with, and we were doing home visits, uh, liked to keep reptiles in his house and all kinds of various animals. Um, so and I have knew, not heard this story, so I'm, I'm loving this. <laughs> now, keep this in mind. When I first went to see this client, I didn't know any of this. All of our interactions had been on the front porch um, because the client was not comfortable with new people namely myself, entering into the home. So the first time uh, that we go to meet, it was a great conversation. The second time I come back, we're actually invited into the house, and the client informs us um, that he's got a a missing animal. Now, from my understanding, this client suffered from pretty severe schizophrenia, which has auditory and visual hallucinations, so seeing hearing things that aren't there. And so when the client told us that one of the animals, um, a poison dart frog, was missing in the home, me and the other counselor who was with me both, both assumed, oh, uh, this guy is just, he's having another visual hallucination. So we talked him through how to get himself down, how to ground himself, how to get his head back into a safer place. And then we, we left and went back. And in talking to our supervisor, when we returned, she let us know, Oh no, that's for real. That dude has a whole terrarium full of poison dart frogs. And there had been a poison dart frog loose somewhere in that house the entire time that we'd been there. (laughs) So we spent the next 30 minutes deeply scrubbing all of the exposed skin on our bodies. Oh my gosh. Is that that type of animal dangerous? It's a poison dart dart frog. frog. (laughs) Okay, I don't know much about that animal, but I, uh, that amphibian, but oh my gosh. Thankfully, neither of us had to be hospitalized. Uh, there was no poison on ourselves. How does he handle them? Or whoever the gender-neutral person this is. <laughs> that's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, well, that's an amazing story. So These are the adventures in mental health that you go through. And these are the kind of things that are taking place with people all around our country. Oh, my gosh. It's a great story. Well, Austin, this is, this is your world. This is what you're being trained in. It's what you're going to do for your livelihood. 
I'm a seminarian. I'm studying theology. So I'm really all ears. I have done no prep for this podcast per Austin's request. I wanted Negative to watch prep. 10 YouTube videos and read some articles and kind of get in this headspace, but I'm coming in. So I kind of feel like a lot of the listeners, honestly. So you kind of start us off. You kind of give us this kind of intro in relationship to mental health. I would love to start by kind of just asking you a cold question. Okay. Because what I really want to be able to speak into and for us to have a conversation about tonight is the way that people are currently looking at mental health. Mm-hmm. And so my view, of course, is already biased just because it's what I'm eating, breathing, and sleeping yeah. every day. But for you, in your experience, how did the churches and the community that you grew up in, I mean, you come from a rather large church community. Yeah. Do you remember and what was it like in the way they discussed mental health in your community? I think in my community, mental health was for to be quite frank, that very small margin of people that had serious, serious conditions. And for people like that, for someone that had schizophrenia, that was mental health. But for all the other ranges of mental health issues, they weren't actually consciously mental health issues. They were either, a lot of the times, spiritual issues or relational issues to be dealt with. But they weren't, I didn't think of them as mental health. And so I think I just had a really reductionistic view of mental health. And often I thought of those as spiritual realities that had to be dealt with in other means. And so it really wasn't until some years later in college where I started thinking about the relationship of the body and the brain and the soul and realizing that coming to realizing I had this dualistic view of human beings, that we had these kind of free floating souls or spirits that we had to deal with in spiritual ways. And then there's the body stuff. And starting to realize that there were major problems with that. And that's when I started realizing, oh my gosh, this is so much bigger than I than I thought before. Yeah. And it is so much bigger. I remember being a kid and being in a pretty fundamentalist private school. And when the topic of psychology or psychiatry came up, it was always placed in the light of something to be avoided and something that would taint you and pull you away from good Christian growth. The idea that all mental illnesses were a spiritual ailment, which is still a belief held by a lot of Christian counselors today, especially in newthetic or strictly biblical counseling. And I'm going to talk about the various Christian views on counseling later, but Mm -hmm. for a significant subset of Christianity and for a lot of us at the seminary and people we know growing up, their Christian upbringing told them that psychology was to be avoided, that it was at odds with Christian belief. I remember even getting into... Um, like my ninth grade year and taking a biology course and we're talking about brain biology and humans and that psychologists and psychiatrists were liars who were trying to subvert Christian truth and Mm -hmm. that you should stay away from them at all costs. And that kind of stuck with me for a long time. I didn't even realize until I was in college and taking psychology courses that I had an internal bias against people who were in the psychology profession that I shouldn't believe what Mm -hmm. they say because they were intentionally trying to lead me away from the true healing that could only come from the church. It, in some ways it was, you know, in my community and even just in larger Christian sphere, it was seen as something secular and as something that was, yeah, that can work or yeah, there's sometimes solutions in that, but it's kind of the thing you go to at, you know, as a last step and you just have to know they're going to be biased against your faith and it's going to be secular. And, 
I think one of the saving graces for me is my dad as a pastor coming from seminary, coming from a seminary background and coming from the United Methodist Church, United Methodist Church. He was actually one of the few people I did know that didn't have this resistance to counseling. Um, he actually, as a pastor, really early on realized that there was a lot of different mental health issues that really needed to be handled by the experts. Mm. And, and he was really progressive in that regard. Yeah, he was. And, and so because of that, I even remember in high school talking to my dad about friends that had depression. And my dad would ask me questions like, are they on medication? I would be like, what do you mean? Like, I didn't even know. Like, there was medication you could take for depression. And then I would go talk to friends in school and friends would say, oh, that's bad. You shouldn't take medication. You know, that's trying to solve it with a natural thing when it's a depression is a spiritual thing. And it's, but I didn't actually get that from my dad as a pastor. And so that kind of, I remember asking my dad those questions like, dad, have we created these dualisms between the body and the spirit in ways that aren't true and, and you know, and aren't good. And, and I remember th- it's my dad was like a hundred percent. And I think growing up specifically in a charismatic church, it was like even more. So I think my dad, we, there was a lot of test cases to pull from where we could talk about things going on in the broader church community. And I started realizing my friend should be maybe taking medication or at least considering that, or at least meeting with a professional that can put all the options on the table. And so it hasn't really been until I would say coming to seminary that I've been trying to really integrate that knowledge into, into my life. I think that your experience is pretty similar for a lot of people in the counseling program at the seminary is this growth into starting to appreciate psychological science and Mm -hmm. integration with biblical truth. Mm -hmm. So tonight, what I really want to get into talking about is number one, the state of mental health in the church. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two, the breakdown of mental health resources and what that looks like in the country and the world that we live in now. And number three, what it looks like for us um, as Christians, as people in various communities, um, whether you are in strictly you know humanistic community, whether you're in a church, wherever you are, what it looks mm-hmm. like to maintain and promote good mental health. Welcome. Welcome. To Will Will Morons. So one of the things I think that we really need to understand, and also I'm super proud of us for nailing that. This is an uncut, just straight through. I'm I'm, Sam, I just can't be more proud of you. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the things that we need to understand in coming into... this discussion of mental health is the, is the prevalence. You know, you started by saying when you were younger, you had the belief that it was something that was on the outskirts. You know, there was a very small marginal group that actually suffered from mental health problems Mm -hmm. and the rest of it was just going to be dealt with by God. Yeah. The reality is in our country right now, one in 10 people will take an antidepressant over the course of their life. Mm. If you have a classroom with 30 people, Three of them are probably on antidepressants or have been at some point. For Medicaid, um, the largest provider of uh, health insurance in our country, um, the its largest expenditure every year is antipsychotics. Mm-hmm. That's for uh, mental disorders like bipolar, schizophrenia, schizoaffective, mm-hmm. and various disassociative or psychotic disorders. If you are in a 
town um, like Lexington, if you're in a city, then there is an enormous percentage of people who are going to suffer from debilitating and impairing mental illness over the course of their life. So if you're in a church and you have a small group of 10 people, one of them at almost any given time is going to be suffering from an impairing and distressing Mm -hmm. mental disorder. Because this isn't something that's just happening on the fringes or on the sidelines. And if you're in a church, the honest truth is it's going to be a lot more than just one in ten. Because what kind of people does the church attract? It's the broken. It's those in need of help. It's those who have been through trauma. People who need healing and to be loved and accepted. Totally. And people with mental illness flock to those groups. Yeah. One of the biggest... um, catalyst for me coming to Asbury was when I was a youth pastor, I noticed that my youth group was accumulating a great number of students with severe and varying levels of mental illness. People who had really strong uh, mental disorders and problems and issues that they were dealing with. And I found myself to be wholly unequipped to deal with most of it. How, How many of those students would people without a relationship know that about them? Was this something that was evident or was it upon those connect points as a youth pastor where you realized, oh, this is going on? The only people that we normally know have mental illness are the ones where it's so profound it can't be ignored. Mm-hmm. And that's not the majority. Yeah. The majority of people suffering from mental illness, which is predominantly anxiety and depression disorders, are pretty good at hiding it because mm. they're making it through their life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you would be just absolutely astounded the amount of people that you see every day who are dealing with some form of really distressing anxiety or depression. But in order to continue in this world, they've just learned how to mask it, how to hide it, how to keep it secret. Um, Because as so many people have experienced, when you start to bring those things up, even in a Christian environment, it's really quick that people will go, well, what moral failing caused you to end up in this place? Yeah. I, th- I think that 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 reality is it confronts that that caricature I had growing up that it's only a small percentage of people that it's only the most significant forms of mental health that are really in that category and so I, I think in my experience as a youth pastor as well and doing youth and college ministry it's a lot more prevalent and it was actually it was actually conversations where I've learned the most by just asking people like my friends that have like a type of chronic depression. It was just seriously asking them lots of questions where I really began to realize this is more common than than I realize. Mm. What were the kinds of things they would say or what were you asking? I think I had, I realized that there was no emotional reference point that I had for depression as someone that didn't have depression. Mm. I realized that it was a different emotional spectrum than just sadness. Mm. It was, it was, it was something I, I didn't have a, a grid for. And that's the hard thing that I, I really just had to listen a lot. And actually, even when I think about the emotional and experiential spectrum of depression, I'm not really sampling that from my experience. I'm really, that's in my brain and in my heart because of those conversations I've had where yeah. I can really understand that. And so it's, but it's, it's relatable, but it's so different. And I don't want to say, oh, yeah, I know it's like to have depression. I, I haven't had depression before. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, I'm learning a lot. Yeah. And a lot of people 
even suffering from depression don't understand what the the levels of symptoms are that qualify you for a diagnosis. Yeah. A lot of people are suffering every day thinking that it's normal mm-hmm. also because they are unable to discuss it in any real way. Now we've we're seeing a, a sort of change in that in a lot of culture in a way that's not necessarily a healthy shift in that depression has become the center of a lot of comedy in our culture mm. and that there is an inordinate amount of jokes or memes or comedy just created about everyone's depressed. And so you have people that the only place where they can talk about it is either like anonymously on the internet where everyone's joking about being depressed all the time. Or if they bring it up in one of their communities, either people think it's a joke or they think that there's something wrong with you Mm -hmm. um, beyond just dealing with a health problem. Yeah. Now, for people who don't know, um, the things that that quantify depression are feeling sad most of the day, almost every day. Yeah. And if that goes on for a short period of time, it might be a depressive episode. But if that's been going on in your life, which for a lot of people it has for months at a time, you know, you might qualify for a major depression disorder. Mm-hmm. If you've lost interest in the things that you used to love doing, um, what we call anhedonia, you just no longer enjoy doing anything. That, that was the part that was new to me. I think mm. the two new parts to me, because I have several friends that I've really learned a lot um, from their own experience. And they've been, you know, they've been meeting with professionals for a long time. That's really helped them is it's, it's, the emotion, but it's the bottoming out. I'm not used to being sad for that long. And I'm not used to being having that much negative emotion where I start to lose hope and purpose where it's not like, Oh, I don't have a meaning for my life. It's like that one thing, like I loved doing, I loved playing my guitar and now I just never want to play like those taking the things you most love and just them being emptied of meaning and emptied of purpose and kind of feeling like a lack of even energy or to do things like that is something I, I wasn't, it's all the combination of those things and the, the longevity that I was not aware of. And I was like, wow, this isn't something where it's like, you're having a bad day. Just, it's going to be sunny tomorrow. You're going to be fine. Yeah. It's, it was much more than that. It's like, oh, thanks. I'm cured. Yeah. And we have that mindset like, oh, well, why don't you just go out and do things? Why don't you just go exercise? Why mm-hmm. don't you just be happy? Why don't you just stop being sad all the time? Yeah. And really those are incredibly hurtful because there's a lot more going on than just a decision to be sad. You know, if you're trying to recognize the symptoms again, if you are unsure if either you or someone in your life might be going through a depressive episode or dealing with depression, you know, disrupted sleep cycle. Yeah. Do you notice that they are either waking up super early and they can't sleep or staying up way into the night? Yeah. You know, the first thing with almost all mental illnesses to go is good sleep. Mm-hmm. So later on, I want to come back to talk about one of the best practices. If you want to preserve a healthy mental state, you got to work on your sleep. That's number one. Yeah. But when you're suffering from a mental illness, it's really hard to do that. So loss mm-hmm. of interest, feeling sad most of the day. Um, a disrupted appetite. Have you noticed someone's gained a ton of weight? Are you gaining a ton of weight? Have you lost mm-hmm. a lot of weight? You know, are you seeing that someone who used to really enjoy eating, you know, that could be one of the hobbies that goes or something where coping, just yeah. using food. And I think what this kind of these, this first part of our conversation really shows is that for, for people like you, it's the combination of your personal experience, but all of this study and then this clinical practice. So you're having this very robust training for people like me and I think for most of the listeners their doorway into mental health 
are the relationships they have. It's the family mm, member. Yeah. It's the friend. And that's why it's kind of a spotty understanding of mental health. Because I've learned more about depression than I have about other forms of mental illnesses. And so I guess to kind of, I know we were talking about depression for a little bit. To kind of take a step back, my question for you is, what are some categories in your brain when you think about mental health, where you kind of subdivide? What, how do you kind of approach that at like a macro level, kind of like a crash course in the mental health? Yeah. So the current Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, or the DSM, it's on its fifth iteration right now, though they're working on a revision for it. Um, so the Diagnostic Statistical Diagnostic manual. and Statistical So when all manual. my counseling friends have been saying DSM, that's DSM what they mean. DSM-5, that's okay. what they mean. Got it. So if you are seeing a mental health professional, this is the book that they're going to be looking at. Okay. And the book is divided into several areas, and inside each of them are related disorders. Okay. So you've got um, uh, developmental disorders, and that could be things that happen from childhood. Um, you can end up, there's... Um, ADHD is in there and things that happen that begin in childhood. You've got your mood disorders, such as anxiety and depression. Um, You've got your personality disorders like borderline and histrionic and narcissistic, uh, antisocial. That's the one you always see on the TV shows. You know, a lot of people getting antisocial or sociopaths, if you will. So you have developmental mood. And what was the third one you mentioned again? Personality. Personality. Okay. Um, and there's, there's lots of divisions in this book. You're welcome to go and look at it. But the thing is, this is not a for sure science. In fact, in the DSM-3, it began with a disclaimer that the diagnoses in this book should not be used for insurance or clinical diagnostics. Okay. But we've really moved in a different direction from there. And a lot of people who do research in the mental health field are concerned about this. In fact, one of the books I've got on the table in front of me right now is called Saving Normal by Alan Francis, and he's a psychiatrist. Hmm. And it's about the overdiagnosis of mental illnesses in our current society. Hmm. So on the one hand, we've got what we were talking about earlier, mental illness and mental issues are really a lot more prevalent than we think. But then you also have the other side of this where the pendulum swings where how much of that needs to be diagnosed because one of the problems with the DSM is that there's not a lot of reliability. If you have five psychiatrists or clinicians or psychologists observe the same person, their symptoms, you could get two or three different diagnoses. So we really just need a more, we're trying to get a more empirical approach. We are. Some kind of fal- falsifiability metrics where you say, okay, I've got this theory that this person might have this. And then you start to weigh it and you go, it's not hitting the metrics. They don't have this. And is that something that's growing? I imagine the empirical data in every single area is hopefully getting better and better. So you've got one camp of people who are yelling, stop over-diagnosing. You know, the people who in retaliation to every young child being diagnosed with ADHD, Mm -hmm. when really they are just very active and don't like sitting, you know. And then on the other side, you have insurance companies who are saying, if you don't give them a diagnosis from this book and show measurable progress, we will not going to pay you. Yeah. Or, yeah. Even if it's not medication. I mean, for most of the people in my field, just the we're showing that medication has been way over dispensed. Okay. And in reality, therapy is a lot mm-hmm. more effective. Yeah. But, but the th- they won't continue. fund the therapy unless, unless, unless you can show diagnosis. marked quick improvement on a specific diagnosis. But how many people do you know that their mental state is going to be 
that particular to the text of a book. Mm. Humans are just a lot more unique and individuated than that. Yeah. So where so we kind of have these different areas, de- developmental, mood, personality. We've got all these different, and obviously this is not something you can cover in a podcast, but where would you want to take us from there as we're kind of just drilling into mental health? Is into where we are more moving and what we should all be aware of and what's important for you to know in your church and for in your house is that the movement of mental health now is in person-centered therapy. Okay. And so it's specific to the person that's in front of you. You know, it's using language that doesn't say, I am a depressed person, but right now I'm dealing with depression. You know, my clients are not schizophrenics but they are currently suffering from schizophrenia. They are not uh, treatment compliant, as if it's something that I've created their best life and they just need to comply with it. But they're treatment engaged. We're Mm. collaboratively working and going forward. And that's something to understand Mm. when you are interacting with people who you know are dealing with mental issues is that you don't give them the identity of a mentally ill person. Okay. But everyone... Every single person on earth at some point will deal with mental distress, anguish, or impairment. Okay. But that doesn't mean that's who you are. Yeah. And so when you're talking with your pastor or with your friends, you know, we, we don't, I think, give enough weight to how important language is. Hmm. And it can be really Im- further impairing when we ostracize people as saying, like, they're just mentally ill. That person, they're just depressed. They're yeah. just anxious. And then they aren't able to move forward in the way that they need to. And Mm. it's even worse when you pile on sort of a misunderstood Christian guilt. Because I think also there's this kind of old wave that is just wanting to kind of name it. To kind of get that out of the way, I think of kind of Alcoholics Anonymous. This, I am an alcoholic. And maybe alcoholism is a different thing. And that's something you've probably studied and thought Mm -hmm. about. But, you know, it's, it's interesting this, how we are quick to adopt these mental health issues as identity markers. Yeah. And it sounds like, and I don't know enough about the evidence, but it sounds like one possible way, one possible benefit of the way you're approaching that language is there is a hope in there that this this is something I struggle with, but it's not necessarily who I am per se. Is that what you're saying? Right. Or it also values the autonomy of the person that they're not just coming to you and Bingo. getting spoon fed, but that they're actually, they're in a sense going, no, that's what's best for me. And I agree with that. I'm going to do that. And there's a, probably a greater buy-in. And psychologically, there are probably more benefits when that happens. Yeah. So much of the mental health environment is finding out what the person wants to do with their life. Mm. Because we will never have a complete picture of what's going on in the person sitting across from us. We don't know exactly what's in their head. And we don't know what's in their life. Mm. We try to approximate that as closely as possible. But at the end of the day, the only decisions that will stick are the ones they make for themselves. Mm. And this is true for people in the therapeutic environment and that you just talk to every day is that we're really quick, men and women, people of all ages, you hear a problem, you move to advice. Mm. You want to tell them, oh, this is how you can fix it because we think based on a couple of sentences that we have a perfect view of how to fix it. So we're especially, and this is, I feel like today I'm noticing more and more how everyone kind of feels like they're an armchair psychologist. Mm-hmm. We love, I think we're, we're living in this post-Freud world where we're trying to get inside people's heads. And one of the weaknesses, especially for people like me, who's a layman and doesn't, doesn't, doesn't have a mental health toolkit, is I want to jump to prescription very fast. But it sounds like what you're saying is, is this, 
therapy-based model is you're really wanting to nail the description, meaning the prescription is this is what you should do. The description is truly understanding where the person is coming from, which means allow me to guess. You probably just do a lot, not just, excuse me, you do a lot of listening. Yes. Not just a lot of listening. You do a lot of listening. And when it's informed say, listening. Informed listening. It's it's yeah. listening in such a way where you are trying to elicit more out of them. Yeah. Not just letting them talk, but asking the questions that are going to guide them to what it is like, and where it is they're trying to go. Mm. Because it's not enough to just sit there and nod your head and say, how does that make you feel? Because mm-hmm. that's the cliche that you hear about always with shrinks. And it's like, yeah, that, that doesn't really help much. But when you can listen to what they're saying and be like, wow, I can really tell that you're feeling this way. Mm. You know, it really seems like you're dealing with, with X or finding the conflict. Wow, it, it seems like you want to be here, but right now you're stuck there. Well, what do you think about that? And, and people are really good at coming to solutions for their own lives yeah. if they are enabled and collaboratively engaged to do so. That, I think that's really important, the informed listening and the guided questions, because I think for someone like me, I can listen, but if it's not an informed listening and it's not guided, really all I can produce is a catharsis. It's just allowing them to, to vent. And that's good. Like we all mm-hmm. go to people and we have to talk about things in life and get things off our chest and talk. Everyone needs friends. And we all too. need that. But when you're dealing with mental health, it's, you're, it's, you're actually wanting to get somewhere. And, yeah. and so just kind of based on what we're talking about now, just keep, keep moving us forward in, in terms of this mental health dialogue. When I got to uh, Asbury, you know, there's all these people entering into the counseling program. You got all these people entering into the MDiv program. And of the MDiv people, the vast majority of them want to end up being pastors and taking on their own churches. Now, from my experience, um, most pastors kind of fancy themselves a little bit of a counselor, which is not a bad thing. You know, pastoral Mm -hmm. counseling is a legitimate thing, but it has its limits. Yeah. Now, for the most part, I don't think that pastors have a good idea on what those limits are, both yeah. because of a lack of knowledge about mental illness and also a lack of what of knowledge about what they don't know. Yeah. Um, a, a lot of pastors will attempt to help someone, but it really just ends up with someone coming into their office and divulging their problem or their you know, depression feelings or their anxiety and the pastor giving them a, a litany of Bible verses and some advice on how to fix it. And then the person leaves and the pastor feels, wow, I, I really did a great job there. Yeah. Um, sometimes that could be helpful, but in the vast majority of cases, not so much. And something yeah. that I've noticed of my um, kind of class of students that have come into Asbury at the same time is that the students who are in MDiv who have taken a couple of counseling courses are infinitely more humble when speaking on psychological topics. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I engage someone who hasn't had a single counseling course on a mental health issue, they're very quick to jump into their solutions. And it's very theologically based and even most of the time really well thought out, but it's so off the mark. Yeah. And, and, but they are very confident in their views because they're preparing themselves to be the one-stop shop for all spiritual, mm-hmm. mental, and physical, or not well, some physical needs for, for their congregations. Yeah. They're going to be the provider. Yeah, I, because, it's interesting. I wanted to double up, triple up my electives on counseling courses because my thought is, oh, I can really get a toolkit for pastoring. And my first uh, counseling class here, they literally said, if you meet with, as a pastor, if you meet with someone more than two times, you are failing them. And I went, 
what are you talking about? And their point was, number one, triage as a pastor, you're dealing with so many, you know, administrational, managerial things. You're planning sermons, services. You're doing all these, you know, these things in the church. You don't have the time to be working with people. But two, you don't have the toolkit. So really, the goal is for me to hear this person and go, you need to meet with a, a professional. Yeah. And and to or even to maybe have enough of a knowledge of, oh, maybe a family counselor will be good. Or maybe a mentor, maybe I have enough knowledge to just send them in a direction. You know, it's, they don't even, or to even, I because I this is what I would say, pastors have a currency of trust with their parishioners, with their congregants, because hopefully they have a currency of trust. If they're a good pastor, they do. And some people will be resistant to counseling. So when a pastor says, I think you should meet with a counselor, and I think I know someone good for you, the benefit for me is not that I did any of the work. The benefit is I had the currency of trust to listen to them, to love them, and to send them the person that can really help them out. Yeah. And, I, and as, a, as pastors will be able to, because of that currency of trust as spiritual leaders, people will be more like, likely to go get counseling because of that. Also, I'll say this. If you have an anti-counseling, anti-psychology, anti-intellectual bent in any of these things, if someone comes to you and you tell them to not get counseling, they'll be more likely to what? Not, not get, get counseling. counseling. So I want to just say this for even future pastors or, or you know, elders or you know, ministry leaders, really think hard about this issue of mental health and counseling and psychology because if you have a currency of trust with people in churches, you're going to be able to either send them in these directions or discourage them. And and sometimes people have been in Christian environments for so long that the pastor said all negative things about it that it's it takes a lot of work to reverse that, you know, that truth that's solidified. In this case, I think a non-truth, but it's solidified in their worldview. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And it's hard to undo that. We need to have a, a knowledge of our own limitations. And yeah. if you're coming into it um, with with a view that there's just no value to psychology, um, you're really doing yourself and the people around you a disservice in the same yeah. way that if you were to tell someone who had a cold not to go to the doctor. You know, mm. in a lot of ways, these mental problems we go through, mental health is a health care problem. Mm -hmm. When you get the flu, you go to your primary care. When you get a mental flu, a depression, when an anxiety problem, a, a mood disorder, any of these things, you go to your primary mental care provider. Yeah. And when pastors can understand their own limitation, we can understand our own limitation as friends, we're going to be able to help people be healthy a lot more. Because yeah. if somebody has an open wound from an accident, you wouldn't go, oh, well, the best thing we can do is pray about it, and I'm going to give you some Band-Aids. Totally. No, you need to get to the hospital. Mm -hmm. When someone goes through serious trauma and they mm -hmm. have an open wound in their head, you don't just go, oh, well, we're going to pray for you, and we're going to give you a hug, and you're going to be okay. Yeah. No, it, it's knowing when to recommend and say, hey, you really should see a health professional yeah. to help you through this. I, I, uh, It's interesting because I think in some ways – the, the homeopathic natural health movement that's happened as this alternative to the medical field is in some ways similar to this biblical counseling or, or even in similar to this anti-counseling reality where it's kind of a spinoff. And so there's a lot of people that they know they need help, but they've found other avenues rather than going to their doctor when they have the flu. Right. It's funny because it's like I joke, but in high school, I remember spraining my ankle once and someone came up and said, 
you know, it was like one of my teachers in high school was like, here, I've got some peppermint essential oils. It's anti-inflammatory. And I, I, I was a basketball player and I literally looked at them and laughed and said, I need a lot of ibuprofen. I need to elevate my ankle. And I think I have a break. <laughs> I need to go to the doctor. Yeah. But it's funny because it's like, in some sense, it's, it's in a, a similar way. And so I think one point I hear from what you're saying there is we need to think about mental health as a health issue. It is a health issue. Exactly. And so um, I one thing I'd love for you to tease out here is, uh, even though I kind of mentioned it, mentioned it, it might be a little premature, um, tease out the difference to me between counseling, of which there are Christians who counsel and who have their practices, and biblical counseling. Yeah, absolutely. Let's tease that out because they're, yeah. In the first course you have to take in the program here, our theories of counseling, um, the first month of the course is dedicated to the various um, primary views on counseling from the church. And one of the main reasons that a lot of people from the church, especially in the past and in evangelical circles, are against psychology is because most of the psychological field operates out of this view that's called levels of explanation. And that would be where all of the different sciences are kind of divided up into what their realm of expertise is, and they are non-overlapping magisteria. I know you're familiar with that term, but it's essentially their areas of knowledge that don't really overlap. And so a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists operate out of this place where religion is a box that is completely separate from medicine. And inside of medicine, you have this box of psychology and psychiatry. And so those things, while they are very important and informative to their own areas, are not to be mixed or intermingled. Yeah. And if you were to go to a large state school and study psychology, you're going to probably be given a levels of explanation view of psychology. We're not going to talk about religion or spirituality here. Instead, we're just going to focus on the empirical evidence Mm -hmm. of psychology. And when brains and neurons are studied and when treatment plans are studied rigorously and academically, this is what Mm -hmm. we know. However, that is not the only view of psychology. Now, on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, you have biblical counseling, which sort of subscribes to that levels of explanation in a roundabout way. You know, the spectrum's more of a horseshoe. They come back together there because biblical counselors believe that everything you need for effective counseling can be found in the Bible, that you do not need any external views or viewpoints or science to be an effective counselor, that purely Mm -hmm. using the words of scripture, you can counsel effectively any problem that comes into your office. Mm Now, the problem here is that it's just not incredibly effective. And it's also falling to this trap of not seeing it as a health issue. Because if you believe that the Bible is a comprehensive book that can solve all human problems, I wonder why we never go to the Bible to deal with our physical health. Exactly. When you feel sick, do you only get a little bit of wine? Because Paul recommended that to Peter one time in a letter. Or (laughs) do you subscribe to the wealth of all medical knowledge? Well, a lot of Christians don't even drink wine. So here we go. Anyway, so <laughs> the point is it's this, it's in a weird way, it, it's um, this assumption that it's not a health issue. It has to be that in some degree. Am I caricaturing it at all? Or I think that that's pretty accurate um, because the idea is, and this is taught by other Christian counseling programs in the state of Kentucky, mm-hmm. is that psychology has, n- has no place. Yeah. in the Christian counseling environment. Do they end up borrowing from secular psychology, but dressing it up in biblical language? Well, not even they... really, because okay. one of the head professors 
um, one of the directors of a department of a Christian counseling program not too far from here. Uh, actually, he just went on record and said, I think that there is some value to psychological science in informing our biblical counseling. And he was removed. Oh, wow. I think I know who you're talking about. Yeah. But the for hardcore, newthetic, or biblical counselors, there's not even really a dressing up. It's more just an entirely different field. Yeah. Now, that does not represent uh, the majority of Christians who are counselors. Okay. And I would say even the level of explanation doesn't, because in between them, and there's some various forms of this, you know, you might lean more towards the, the biblical side or more towards the levels of explanation, but the ones in the middle are called integrated counseling. Okay. And that's an integration, a joining, an enmeshing of Christianity and psychological science in such a way where they both inform each other and they're both really useful. Mm-hmm. And now that is predominantly what we learn in most of our classes here, though the seminary does teach from all these different perspectives. Um, the majority of my classmates and myself subscribe to this integrationist view. Mm-hmm. And what's crazy is that's not just popular at a seminary counseling program. That's becoming a more dominant view all around the country. And it's not necessarily marrying Christianity, but it, marrying spirituality and yeah. counseling because of the recognized need for holistic spiritual approach in any counseling environment. That's really fascinating because I think at another level, and correct me if I'm wrong, does that correlate somewhat with a therapy-based model because my thought is a lot of people are religious a lot of people are spiritual so to compartmentalize that part of their of their being and their psychology to simply deal at this highly empirical rationalistic level it doesn't seem very holistic to me even if you're a secular counselor even if you as an individual counselor i'm as an atheist or i'm agnostic you want to there might be at a therapy-based level i'll be able it might be wise to be able to talk about those type of things or just see how they affect that person's life. Because otherwise you're ignoring a significant part of their life. And for most people who are religious and people who are Christian, that is the meaning-making device of their life. And so much of counseling is digging into the meaning-making machine of your brain and figuring out where the problems are. And from the get-go, they're fully critical of that part of your life, which everyone's faith has beautiful things and it has things that need to be critiqued. If you're only resisting that, I, that probably is going to either confuse someone or it's going to cause them to not trust you. Right. And I think some of those negative caricatures and stereotypes is that they're like all professions, like lawyers and doctors and engineers. There are probably not good, great counselors, not good therapists and not good psychiatrists. It's and true. some people have had that experience. And so that kind of proliferates out. Mm-hmm. But it kind of sounds like that's kind of an old wave that's kind of dying out, that there's more of an integrationist model. Unfortunately, it isn't dying out. It's not dying it's, out. It's very st- much still extant. Um, is there okay? is a significant part of the American Counseling Association. That's the main governing body okay. for counselors um, in America, of course. And there's a, a view of a lot of counselors of this secularism that religion itself is a damaging force and there's a lot of vitriol pointed specifically towards christianity that christianity is a damaging force and the studies don't necessarily bear that out now you're welcome to go and look this up on your own because there's a lot of conflicting evidence that goes both ways there's evidence that show you know people who are really overly involved in religion end up with worse outcomes and there's some that say people who are really dedicated to religion end up with better outcomes but when you tell a person oh, the problem of your life is that you're just religious. 
generally what you're doing is just creating a condemnation and guilt complex in them. It's a very Sigmund Freud, Karl Marxian religion. is just the opiate of the people. And when you deny a meaning making device in someone's life like that, generally you're, you're harming them. And it's a very, it's a monovariate analysis. It's only analysis at one level. And we should be dealing at a univariate analysis. Like people are complicated. They have layers to them. And to just say your religion is only good or you're, because even if you believe something that's true, it can still have negative spinoffs and damaging spinoffs. And, and so, it, so yeah, that's just interesting. So you, you ascribe and, you know, Asbury Seminary to this integrationist model. Right. Um, what exactly does that look like in your opinion? An integrationist model is one where, as uh, some of our professors would put it here, operates Christomorphically. So okay. it's not explicit. You would never evangelize in a counseling environment because the idea is not for someone to sit down and you do your best job to convince them to think like you do. Mm-hmm. The idea is to figure out how they can be healthy in their own mind. Mm-hmm. So everything that you do, however, as a counselor, as a psychologist, as a human, is going to be informed by the beliefs that you yourself have. Yeah. So for me, when I'm sitting in a counseling office, everything I do is informed by the beliefs that I have about God implicitly, even if not explicitly. Mm -hmm. And so the love that I have and the emphasis on reconciliation and a universal bend towards good and love and this higher power of God is going to necessarily inform the way that I approach Mm -hmm. caring for and helping and serving my own clients. Yeah. And so I'm not coming in there to convince them that you need to pray a sinner's prayer or you need to start going to church. That's going to fix your problems. Mm-hmm. But everything that I do is based out of an outpouring of the love that I have within myself. Yeah. And that looks different for all different Christian practitioners. But the thing is, it's always molded and works for the best and the benefit of the person sitting across from you. So you don't have to have a directly compatible worldview to really help this person. Exactly. And so that enables you to really care for people on a much more broad level. On a broad level, a lot of counselors you know, have this understanding that everything that you do has to be for grist for the mill or, or mm-hmm. for the therapeutic benefit of the client. Yeah. And so you have people ask like, well, what if I want to pray with my clients before every session? Well, is that for their benefit or for your own? You know, what if I want to bring up Bible verses in, in a session? Is that to help mm-hmm. with your own feelings of anxiety or the client's? Yeah. Now, if the client requests those things, then by all means. If totally. the client asks you to pray with them, then you are more than welcome to do so. And if and if I can, you know, draw an analogy, it's like my uncle who is is a physician. Like he he prays with some of his clients, but it's because he knows they have faith. They talk about it and they want to pray with them. They bring it up. Exactly. And that's just, to be frank, that's how professional relationships work in almost every domain. Mm-hmm. And it works in counseling the same. And also, I'll say this. There is an amazing place. Like, I'm going to be a pastor one day. There's an amazing place for all those things. But I'll be fully honest. People are getting those in their churches. Hopefully, they're getting them in their churches. They're getting them in their bands or they're getting them in their small groups. They're getting with their family members and their friends. And most people, it's not actually solving those mental health problems. Right. And and so, and I don't think there's a lack of those things. I think there's, seems to be a, what, a lack of this. Mm. And so I don't think, I don't think that's 
an issue by any means. I don't think that's something, I think that is actually just part of the discipline and it's necessary. I've had someone tell me, well, if someone's dealing with mental health issues, really what they need to do is just develop a better friend group. So the the client is just the replacement of real social interaction in the world. Mm-hmm. And I would speak to that person and say, would you say the same thing about a disease? Mm-hmm. You know, if you develop a cancer, if you have a serious wound, do you just need better friends? Like, should you just have friends who are doctors who are around you all the time so they can heal those things? Mm-hmm. And it's like you've, we've, like both of us have been saying, it's reframing this idea that mental health is a health issue. And it's an essentialism. It's, it's the equivalent of, the doctor giving you probiotics for everything. Like you walk in the door, here's the probiotics, here's the probiotics. It's like, that's a bad doctor. In the same way to assume that all people are going to therapy because they simply need a friend right. is, is in this form of essentialism. It's it to is. boil down to one thing. And that's the opposite of what good counseling is, which is you're literally saying, I'm going, this is about the patient. Mm-hmm. To, and so it just seems against the grain of your entire discipline. <laughs> and it's also important for people to recognize what kind of professional they need to see. Yeah. Because since this is a burgeoning and growing field, there's a lot of lack of information. So yeah. whether you're someone who's going to be referring or someone who needs to see a professional yourself, you've got psychiatrists who are able to prescribe medication. Yeah. And while I, I do absolutely advocate for the efficacy of better living through chemistry, uh, it doesn't stop there. Now, a lot of psychiatrists aren't going to do the second part of mental health, and that is therapy. Yeah. So uh, you in that field, you have psychologists and you have clinical mental health therapists and marriage and family therapists. Yeah. And uh, psychologists, they go on all the way to get their doctorate. A psychiatrist is a medical doctor, and that's why they can prescribe medication. Yeah. Psychologists have a psychological doctorate. Um, and these people are going to be able to not only do therapy, but to administer certain levels of restricted tests like IQ tests. Yeah. Uh, you also have the clinicians, so mental health therapists, mental health counselors, marriage and family therapists. These require a master's degree mm-hmm. and a license, uh, which is given by the state. And those people generally pair up or work alongside psychiatrists who are prescribing medication to provide the therapeutic element. Because mm-hmm. keep in mind, all of these pills, these antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications are creating conditions in your brain that your brain can also create. It's creating chemicals in your brain that though you have a deficiency of, your brain can learn to produce those things correctly as well. Mm -hmm. So medicine paired with therapy, which is retraining your brain to create those chemicals properly, Mm -hmm. uh, that, that comes together to create treatment. And then you also have social workers. So social workers require only a a bachelor's degree, but they can have a master's. They have some clinical training. Um, and some of them have quite a bit. My supervisor, my immediate supervisor at the clinic where I work is a, um, has a master's of clinical social work. Um, social workers generally focus more on connecting to community resources, um, as well as a, a a bit of clinical intervention and therapy. So for the range of people who are listening to this episode and they're wondering, so when I have an issue, whatever it be, and I feel like I need help, mm-hmm. but I just don't know who to go to, what do you recommend for them? I recommend this, even though it might sound biased because I'm going to be a clinical mental health counselor. See a counselor first. Um, like, 
Alan Francis says in his Saving Normal, a lot of people's first stop is their primary care or their psychiatrist, and they're given a prescription with no knowledge of what that's going to be doing to them, the effects it will have on their brain, or how they're going to get better. Uh, And then they end up failing out and not really improving at all. I would recommend going to see a counselor first, a therapist, who's going to talk with you and figure out what is going on, you know, what kind of issues you're dealing with, and be able to make a written and informed referral to a psychiatrist yeah. if necessary to get on medication. And it's not like you know exactly what medication they need. It's simply they are in the ballpark of of an issue or mm-hmm. issues that I think might need this. And so I think most I'm of your them to them. mental health therapists are going to be educated in psychopharmacology. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm required for one of the classes I'm in now to read through the majority of a psychopharmacological book. So I'm an, I, I have a, a very good working knowledge between that and my practicum internship totally. and what are the drugs and what do they do and how do they interact. But yeah, the even if you're just giving a ballpark, a lot of times a therapist can be like, hey. You can go on medication, but side effects can be pretty severe. Yeah. I think that you would benefit most exactly. from therapy. Because as a therapist, as any mental health professional, you're always trying to find the least restrictive form of treatment. So in a sense, you're like, in a good way, a generic gatekeeper mm. that can send people to the people they need. Is that somewhat yeah. true? It looks like you need this testing. Oh, you might have this going on. You know, We're going to test for this personality disorder. If it's something that the therapist can't give, they can refer you to a psychologist who can do that test. Mm-hmm. If it's medication you need, they can refer you to a, a psychiatrist. If it's community resources that you need, you know, if most of your uh, mental anguish is sprouting from an inability to get active daily living goals, like you need mm-hmm. shelter, food, provision, yeah. connection to resources, well, a social worker is going to yeah. be a good connection. That, so that's really helpful. So any any more on that end? That's I'm learning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is a lot to take in, and and there's so many different ways to go. But I would recommend first stop, yeah. have them see a therapist, whether it's someone that's in a community therapy environment or in a private practice. It's best practice for any of those people to keep mm-hmm. a log, a resource book on hand of people to connect to. Do you, so for example, if someone comes to you and you think they need to see a psychiatrist, do you send those notes over to the psychiatrist normally, or is it just kind of a fresh start? How does that normally work? Normally, you're not going to be just sending them off and saying good luck. You're okay. going to be referring, referring them to someone for an appointment so that they can get a certain medication because most psychiatrists aren't going to meet with you for an hour. Okay. It's going to be a 15, 20 minute appointment. Like Do you they have any with, information with on you normally that you send over so they can kind of see what you're yes. struggling with? Okay. Which is why in the community clinic where I work now, you have to meet with us for three sessions before we'll send you to a psychiatrist because that's three hours with you. And that's generally enough time to determine if someone is going to benefit from therapy or if they might need um, medicational intervention. Mm-hmm. Cause, cause and some they get of, our notes. Because some of these drugs have a lot of side effects. And when you try to wean yes. off, it's very, very intense. You can even have to go to rehab sometimes to get off some of these drugs. A, a person that we know, my family knows, um, in, in Alabama, he... Uh, was a therapist himself, and when he was weaning off of his antidepressant, he uh, went off of it too quickly, and one of the side effects of that is suicidal ideation, and he had also had a lot of other things going on in his life, but he ended up taking his own life um, because he wasn't taking the medicine as prescribed, Yeah, and that is one of the, the dangers, is that if you use 
psychotropic medication or antidepressants or anti-anxieties improperly yeah. and you're not well versed on what it's doing to your mind, yeah. you know, you can end up in a worse place than you started. You have to be very careful weaning off these drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, or going on to them. Or going on to them too, which is, yeah. There's no magic bullet in a pill can that's going to save you. And this is why we need professionals. Absolutely. This is, th- when you start to see it through a lens of health, the severity really kicks in and you realize. And so I think it's simply, we have to transfer our natural intuitions uh, and our, our knowledge about physical health care. And, and, you know, just primary health care. And we have to think about mental health care in that way. Absolutely. And I think if we can make that transference, there's a lot of dots connect. Because it's the same thing. You go to your doctor, but then they send you off to the specialist if you need that specific work. Exactly. It's the same type your of thing. Your primary care is your first stop. Yeah, exactly. You don't go, oh, I think I need this surgery. I'm going to go to the surgeon. Like, you know, like you, you go to a person that, and you kind of work on those levels. And so I think it's... In, in some sense, there's that specialization that have emerged within mental health. Everyone should have a primary care mental health physician, essentially. Yeah. Someone that you know, if you go through a rough life circumstance, if you're going through an adjustment problem, that you know that you can go and see this person. And if you are a community leader, if you're a pastor or an organizational chief, then you should know people in your community that you develop a personal relationship with that you can trust to refer people to. Yeah. Because if you're a pastor and you just go on Google and look up a therapist to send your people to, you wouldn't want to send them to a wolf because there are good and bad therapists. But as community leaders, it's one of your responsibilities to develop a relationship with people you know and can trust to send your folks to. Hmm. That's really good. I'm learning a lot. <laughs> this is why I love. We have got we got four people in this dorm, and two of them want to be pastors, and two of them want to be counselors. And I'm learning a lot from you guys here in the madhouse. Here in the madhouse. So, any any final thoughts? I'm really soaking this in. The last thing I wanted to talk about was personal care. Okay. Um, how to how to recognize in yourself and best practices for maintaining good personal. Is that where you mentioned sleep health? earlier? Yeah, because yeah. the number one thing is sleep. You know, it's the first thing to go, and it's a lot of times one of the last things to come back. Like my like, I have someone I'm close to that has really chronic insomnia, and it's really a stress on their entire life. It's massively it's really debilitating. Hard. Yeah. To have a what we call mindfulness approach. And so one of the marriages of spirituality and religion with psychology is the mindfulness movement. And it's been spearheaded by uh, a handful of people, one of them Kabat-Zinn. And it's based off of a lot of really well-evidenced science in that mindfulness, whether that's in the form of meditation or just good self-awareness, has a physical and measurable impact on the brain. The fear center of the brain is the amygdala. The thinking center and the aware center is the prefrontal cortex. And we have measurable changes in people who are practicing good mindfulness. And so that could be centering prayer. If you don't know what that is, please Google it. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. It could be mindfulness meditation or transcendental meditation. It can be mindfulness and awareness breathing or body scan exercises. And these things have been shown to decrease the mass of the amygdala and increase gray matter in the prefrontal cortex. What that Mm. means is your brain's less likely to panic, to get angry, or to move into fight or flight, and more likely to think through and remain calm in any situation mm. that you encounter. Yeah. One of the first things as well in the counseling program that we learn here is centering prayer, how to practice that to maintain good health as a counselor. 
Yeah. And, and those things are just enormous. So sleep, centering prayer. How much does even other things like exercise and, and healthy eating factor into these things? Healthy eating and exercise are both really big protective factors. And protective mm-hmm. factors are things that you can rely on when you are going through mentally straining environments or situations. Yeah. Uh, peer connections and family connections. Maintaining open communication about the way that your mental state is going. Mm-hmm. In order to communicate your mental state, you have to be aware of it. It's also a awareness of other people's mental state. So when you have friends, sometimes we can get in the habit of just randomly dumping our mental state on someone else. But having the respect and the awareness to ask, hey, do you have the mental space for me to talk to you about this right now? Would it be okay if I kind of do a bit of venting, if I tell you what's going on? Because while it is healthy to share, you don't want to do it in a way that's unhealthy for the Mm -hmm. person you're sharing with. Yeah. What, uh, what about for those that are saying, I've really been working on these things like sleep, like exercise and eating, even mindfulness, but I sense there's just something wrong because I just feel a lack of connection in my life, a lack of relationships. That can come from all kinds of different areas. Yeah. You know, are the lack of connections um, because of a life circumstance you're going through? Have you gone through a recent change? Have you had a stressor? It might be something where maybe the systems you've developed for yourself in developing relationships just aren't where they need to be or they aren't in a healthy way. It's being aware of the own, the traumas in your life. Mm -hmm. One of the really startling things that is recent research is what we call ACEs, adverse childhood experiences Mm -hmm. and how most people, you know, the vast majority, upwards of 80% will experience some kind of adverse childhood experience or, or trauma. And what has been demonstrated is that, Adverse experiences in childhood have effects cascading for the rest of your life. And most people are completely unaware of what those effects are. Now, there is what's called the ACE exam or the ACE inventory, which is accessible for free online if you Google that. Mm -hmm. And you can determine how many ACEs you had in your childhood. Now, having zero to one can have some effects, but for the most part, it can be mitigated by good protective factors like exercise, eating, family, friends. Um, But if you have three you are now prone to all kinds of of issues in your life. You're more likely to engage in risky drug use, alcohol use, sexual behaviors. You're more likely to have suicidal thoughts. You're more likely to feel alienated from people in your life. If you have four or more on that test, one in nine people with four or more adverse experiences in childhood attempt suicide at some point in their life. And almost all of them will be addicted to some kind of substance at some point in their life. Hmm. And we don't even realize the effects that traumas early in our life have on the way that we behave and interact with the world today. And one of the biggest steps you can take in taking control and responsibility for your own mental health is understanding the things that happened in your life to get you there. Yeah. It's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's, yeah, you throw that ace in there. I'm like, oh gosh, I got to take that test myself. So, and I, th- I think all of these examples actually, in my mind, help people connect the dots between health care, mm-hmm. mental health, but specifically the body and the brain, the interconnectivity. We're embodied souls that for me, the boundary of the body and the boundary of the soul are the same boundary. We are human beings and people know this intuitively because our diets, our sleeping patterns, our relationships, all of these things are exercise, 
all of these things massively affect our moods and our behaviors incredibly and 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 our mental states and i think that's a sign if if those things drastically affect us then we have to start realizing that these these kind of dichotomies we've created between the spirit and the body they're just they're not true and they're not mm. working yeah and and that we have to really value caring for the the brain and the body at a serious level yeah and I think there's a lot of people that when they start to, they've really taken spirituality seriously, but they haven't taken embodiment or mindfulness seriously. And when you start to put all of that together, you really start to feel like you're living life at a, on another level, it's a true. higher level. And I think if people think through those things, they can go, oh, why am I doing this weird? I must have a need a spiritual solution here. Because another thing that I would pose to people, and I guess maybe this is where I get to come in and just give my two cents throw it in there who are we to say that this isn't spiritual <laughs> to say i as the pastor do the spiritual work but you austin as the counselor you're just doing the that you're mm. just doing that kind of just non-spiritual stuff it's like to talk about someone's trauma to work through someone's trauma to work through those type of things that's a deeply emotional human soulful reality that you're, that's to 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 help someone come through that trauma and I don't even know how you do that, how you work through people with trauma to, to help people get through their trauma. That for me, as someone that's a pastor, that's, there's nothing more caring for someone, someone that is in a depressive state when we can go through all these different issues. That's, that's just deeply beautiful. And I, I, I just don't find these dichotomies helpful anymore. Quite frankly, as someone who studies scripture, studies theology, wants to be a pastor, cares about my faith, cares about, about the gospel, I, I don't find these things helpful. Yeah. And so I just want to, there's a lot, a lot of work. We could, you could give a lot of, you know, a lot of kind of encouragements or recommendations in the counseling in, and I could on certain theological issues that intersect, you know, I could try to bring, bring some of these things together, but I, I really think we should start to just own that fact. Mm. And I'll just say this as someone that wants to pastor a church, there's a there's a there's a place for pastoral counseling. There's a place for lay counseling, but I think we need to really understand the boundaries and the limits of those forms of counseling, and we need to really value professional forms of counseling and therapy and psychiatry and psychology. And I just I that's something I'm really going to want to value. I do not see myself as a future counselor. I I see it myself as a human being that hopefully is amassing knowledge and wisdom and empathy and can be a friend and be a spouse and be, and be a father. But in terms of this professional type of work, I just want to send them to someone like you. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And I get to, and that's yeah. the thing, make friends with counselors and therapists and psychologists, make friends with these people because you will love them. You will love their faith. You will love their life. You will love what they do for people. And it will be your joy to send those in need in your parish, in your church, in your friend group to people like you. It's a joy. And, and, I, and I mean that. And I think we, sh we should jump on that bandwagon. <laughs> <laughs> so there's my, there's my uh, I, and I think it's changing. I think slowly but surely we're, uh, we're changing on this one. I look yeah. forward to where the church is going. We're moving right? in a good direction. And it's a society-wide thing too because there was a stigma and historically, and even in the secular world, there was a stigma related to 
Yeah. Even as a couple, it's seeing couples strong. counseling. So we just need, I think even doing an episode like this, it's completely, we're trying to remove the stigma, 100%. Absolutely. A lot of what I've talked about tonight uh, comes from a book called The Body Keeps the Score um, by uh, author Dr. Vanderkolk, um, who is a psychiatrist and was on the forefront of the development of a lot of modern psychological medicine um, and also just paramount research in, into trauma. And if you want to know more about how to address the own trauma in your life, mental health issues in your life and those around you, I strongly, strongly recommend that book. Um, but like you were saying, it's that connection between the mind and the body. Because we have done a lot of work, a lot of effort to sever that connection between the mind and the body. And the result of that is we have a lot of disembodied problems. Uh, one of the things observed in the book was there were uh, uh, clients, patients that would come in. And this might even be true of some people you know. And mm-hmm. they had gone through so much trauma when they were younger and it's so successfully severed the connection between mind and body that in closing their eyes you could place a key in their hands and they couldn't tell you what the object was yeah we have got to do a better job of encouraging each other and ourselves to restore the connection between our minds and our bodies yeah mental health is a full person experience yeah and if you try and just make it cerebral, you're going to fail. If you try and just make medicine about the body, you're going to fail. Yeah. But when you want to live a healthy life where you are fully actualized as a human being, mm-hmm. there is a necessity to reconnect the brain to the body. Yeah. And for those that are interested in this theologically, there's a book called Whatever Happened to the Soul, Scientific and Theological Portraits of Human Nature. This is an interdisciplinary book at Fuller, the- Fuller Theological Seminary. Um, Warren Brown, she um, teaches, is a professor of psychology there. And then Nancy Murphy, I love Nancy Murphy. She teaches Christian philosophy there. And really what they do is they create, basically paint an empirical and theological picture of monism, which is this, the reality of the body and the soul, the body and the brain being one reality that we're, that we're one being. And this book was a thing that helped me realize how messed up my theology was to be fully honest and it really it kind of primed me to really value psychology and so for those that are going i don't know i don't know if i agree with this connectivity between the body and the brain i that feels more like a secular modern category for me i don't know how that squares with scripture or theology or my christian faith i really recommend this this is a christian psychologist and a christian philosopher having that conversation and i think those are two great works from the opposite side of the spectrum. Mm. So this isn't the end of this convo. Uh, We're going to be continuing the conversation in um, a second part mental health episode that we're also really excited to be bringing to you. So if this piqued your interest, then just stay tuned because there's definitely more coming your way. We got more poison dart frog stories (laughs) in the mix. (laughs) I hope that I don't encounter any more poison dart frogs, but I probably will. I kept calling them an animal. Help me out. Give me the biology. An animal? What, like a, an amphibian? It's an amphibian, right? And yeah. I kept saying animal. I was like... I guess amphibians are technically I, animals. Everything's an animal. I was like, I feel sounds so dumb right now. <laughs> anyway, cheers to the poison dart frogs. Cheers. <laughs> what an ending. <laughs> That's a good stop.
imagine the bass with bum bum and then yeah. 